0: The National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In 2019, Leslie was married to Ryan. They owned a business together. They had two small children under the age of four. Their lives were interwoven on basically every level. Then, one day, towards the end of their vacation with extended family, Ryan died. He had both an aneurysm and a stroke, caused by an undiagnosed condition he'd had since birth. In less than a day, Leslie went from sharing everything with Ryan to feeling like half a person. Leslie and her two young kids and their family returned to the Pacific Northwest, where Leslie went about figuring out how to live without her other half. That figuring out included telling her young children again and again that their dad had died. Running the business that she and Ryan used to run together. Deciding when and how to date. And eventually, falling in love and getting married again. In all of that figuring out, what Leslie most wanted, though, was to talk to other widows. People who could say, yep, I get that. This is how I handled it. The comfort she found in those connections with other widows inspired her Vids for Wids project. It's a series of videos with other widows and people who work in the grief world who share suggestions and stories meant to help widows feel less alone. Leslie is an earnest and candid storyteller who weaves humor and humanity into each aspect of her experience. Okay, here's my conversation with Leslie. Leslie, it's so nice to be with you uh, in this space because last time we met, you were asking me the questions and I had to stand in front of a camera. (laughs) This is much better. You were in the hot seat. seat. Now I'm in the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for being part of the podcast today.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. The Dougie Center is something that means so much, so much to me and my story and my family. So it feels like a real honor to be here.
0: And talking to you. Tell us a little bit about Ryan. Like, how did you meet? What was your relationship like?
1: Ryan and I actually met at work. So we were co workers before we were ever romantic. Um, we worked in a creative space together. It was a children's media company and we basically made weird educational videos for kids. And it what's really funny is that they, they were hiring, it was 2010, there was not a lot of jobs. I was like fresh out of college and I interviewed for this job, it's an on-camera job, like talking to kids all day, kind of like a radio show, but it's live streaming. And not really what I wanted to do, (laughs) but I needed a job. And so anyways, they interviewed me, then they called me and like, we want to give you the job. We think you're perfect. But here's the thing. Like we also interviewed someone else that is also perfect. So we're thinking of splitting the job in two. So instead of a 40 hour work week, you get less hours because we love you both so much. And that other person was Ryan. So (laughs) we met on the first day of work and What was really funny is like from the very beginning, we shared a 40-hour work week. We kind of shared that. That was like the way our story kept going because we eventually, you know, fell in love at work and all that. And eventually we got married and we ended up leaving that company and starting our own company together. And we really kind of took up the same space in the room, like kind of loud creatives and loved writing, loved nerding out about movies and storytelling and all that. So um, it was interesting. The merging of our identities started very early on, even in our coworking and our friendship. We were like writing partners and it was always like, give that to Ryan and Leslie. Ryan and Leslie will do that. Um, so yeah, that's sort of our story. There was very little that we did separately because our even our hobbies were so linked. Um, and so we started with like this fr- really strong friendship, and then it became romantic. So it wasn't like, oh, our romantic life together, husband, wife, and then everything else work. It was like all
0: merged right from the beginning, although he started as your competitor. But I guess that, that role didn't last very I mean, long. I not really. Yeah, well, it was
1: interesting. Like, we got trained on the same day. And it was sort of like, you are, like, we were just a, kind of in sync. Our humor and all that. And I remember our friend, um, who was, like, our manager at the time, when she was interviewing both of us, she was like, this is crazy. And she saw it before we did, you know? <laughs> we were, like, in sync.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I'm wondering... Uh, since you all met through work, and it seems like you both had a pretty, like, fiery, creative, sparky, like, way of working personalities. And then I think about, like, the, the day-to-day domesticity of, like, running a house and having kids yes. and picking up after animals. Like, how how did that work for you all?
1: Well, I feel like because we started in a co-working relationship, we had a pretty good flow of, like, receiving Constructive criticism that I think flowed into the management stuff. But marriage and family and parenting is way harder than running a business together. Um, so I think we, you know, we were every day was a new lesson to be learned. Um, but we had a lot of fun. I feel like if I could sum up our relationship in um any way, it would really be it was just so much fun. It was really built on a friendship
0: and what do you want to share about the not fun part when yeah. Ryan died
1: he died suddenly and it's funny that it, you say not fun because he died on a like a fun trip a vacation which was really jarring and shocking and um yeah, it was unexpected. So we we were down in California. We did a three-day Disneyland trip with my sister's family. So there was like five kids between us, and we went really hard. We had never done that many Disney days. And it was kind of just a chaotic, stressful, wrangling kid time. And then at the end of it, it was spring break. We got a house in Palm Springs, and that was supposed to be just like the relax at the pool time kind of get ready to get back into life. So we were at in Palm Springs and it was just the second day there while we were at the pool that Ryan said, Leslie, something's wrong. And it was just all of a sudden he had gotten up from his chair and went inside and um, said that all the kids were swimming and me and my sister and my brother-in-law, we ran inside. You know, he was saying his face was burning and hurting and and he had he had his own struggles with grief. both of Ryan's parents had died when he was um, his mom died when he was 19 or 20 and his dad died when he was 25. So he had panic attacks and so I that's where I went first. I thought it was an anxiety and a panic attack, but my sister thought really quickly and she was like, no, something is off um, And the paramedics came very quickly to the house and they took him away and he was still talking. He's like, everything, it's going to be okay. He asked for his glasses. I got his glasses and I asked if I could go in the ambulance and they were like, no, there's too much going on. Then I, I had to nurse my baby boy. He was 15 months at the time. And so I nursed him and then I, I drove to the ER and What I learned there is that in the ambulance, he had some other – a second episode of some kind and um, basically had stopped breathing. And I I learned later that he had an aneurysm and a stroke and that it was caused by something called AVM arterial – I can't even say it (laughs) – arterial venous malformation, um, something that he was born with that we didn't know. But it was, you know, as close to someone just dropping dead right in front of you as you can get. um, He was there and then he was gone. And it kind of felt like a, like, poof. And so that sudden death side of it, it, it there was no goodbye, you know, besides like saying I was going to be right behind him. And he had kind of said it was going to be okay. It was just... Um, He was gone. And then they did have him in a coma, intubated. And so there was this sort of long process. It was only 48 hours, but living it felt more like years at the hospital. Um, And we kind of waited for different family members to fly in. And we said goodbye to Ryan one person at a time. And then we all were in there playing music and when they took him off life support they were like i it could take 3 days and i was like oh my goodness it's it's been 2 days and it feels so long i can't imagine 3 days but they were like i don't he, you know it doesn't look good for him it'll probably go very quickly and it was like two songs two songs and um yeah he was gone and then we had to fly back for Like sunny California to rainy Vancouver in April. And that was very strange, the hardest flight of all of our lives um, because we had all these kids that we were managing. And, you know, you know, probably from the Dougie Center that kids are still kids, even when they're grieving. You know, they're still hard to get on a plane um, and especially little ones. And you know, we were just these numb adults. My parents were there and my sisters and we're just boarding this plane just in complete shock um, with the kids and had to come back to my life and my house without him and with his, you know, his suitcase that we had to, that, you know, had all of his stuff that we had to eventually unpack. I waited a year to unpack it, but (laughs) it's, yeah, it was it's cruel to die on vacation, um, to die in that way in something that's supposed to be fun. I always sort people were like, it's so nice that you didn't die at your house because then you wouldn't you're not triggered by your house. But I always like, I wish that it was sort of in our everyday life, not this weird space that's supposed to be this happy,
0: wonderful time. Um, yeah, it seems like kind of like no matter how someone dies, Other people will find a way to say, well, at least that sounds better than this. And you're like, well, it's all terrible, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs)
1: You're like, "Ah, okay, he's still dead.
0: As you were talking, Leslie, one thing I was thinking about is for some folks, when it's a very like sudden, unexpected death like that, the details around what happened get really fuzzy and hazy. And it seems like for you, it's very clear And Mm -hmm. I just wonder what your relationship with those memories has been like over the last couple of years.
1: That's interesting that you say that. I don't know if it's the way that I specifically cope, but I have talked with another sudden death widow who replays the minute by minute and the hour by hour. Because for us, it's not, you know, five years with cancer. That we're replaying, we are trying to like untangle a very short amount of time that felt like a really long amount of time. So I feel like that was part of my a big part of my grieving was retelling it in great detail, writing it out in detail, making like timelines, comparing my story with my sister's story. I was like, it was 1:30 p.m. when the ambulance came. And she's like, Oh, you know, we all kind of have our own timeline, but replaying the details, I don't know if that was my way of trying to understand and wrap my head around the shock of it all. And I was surprised by that because I thought, you know, if something like that happened to my life that I would go kind of silent and numb But I was like vomiting the story to everybody. And I felt bad Now looking back. Everyone that came over to visit me had to hear like the detailed play-by-play of Ryan's stroke and aneurysm. And, you know, some of his friends, I don't think really wanted to hear that. That was like shocking for them and his family too. I remember one person in his family had to leave because she felt like her face was going numb as I was talking. And I'm telling all these details about it. Um, and looking back and like, that was sort of socially weird of me to do that. But I think that was just my way of reminding myself that it was real because it was so shocking and sudden and he, he was so healthy. There was nothing like AVMs. Sometimes they present themselves with migraines or headaches. So you like eventually go get the MRI, but he didn't even have that. So
0: it was just, he was there and then he was gone. Like you said that poof. And to have had that happen outside of your day-to-day life can sometimes bring an even additional layer of surrealness to it.
1: Yes, very
0: much so. You mentioned that your youngest at the time was 15 months. You also have another child who was toddler age. Three
1: and a half. He was three and a half, yeah.
0: And you're on vacation with their cousins and your family and have to get on this plane. Like, What do you remember about how you initially talked to wit, and to your youngest about what happened? Well,
1: Rory was not really talking at the time. You know, he's baby mode, you know, kind of squawking. And (laughs) I think he said, like, hi, and mama. So I wasn't really super focused on Rory. Obviously, my heart was really broken for Rory. And I was having, eventually, I would process the fact that Rory wouldn't know Ryan at all and wouldn't have memories, but I was so focused on Wit because he was this talking kid with emotions. He had a whole relationship with Ryan and he was three and a half, but he was very verbal, you know, oldest child kind of, he seemed more like he was four and a half, I think clicking back. So for me, I was like really focused on how it would affect him. And I, I remember being at, the hospital. They were all at the Airbnb that we were staying at, playing at the pool the whole time we were at the hospital. and No one was telling the kids. There was the oldest kid was aware of what happened. I think Scout was eight at the time, my nephew. So he was looped in of what was happening. But my little ones are just like, they're just jumping in the pool, having fun. And I'm in the hospital Googling, you know, how do you tell your three-year-old his dad died? Because a lot of people are asking me, like, you're going to tell Wit when you get home, right? And I think I might have pushed it off a little bit because it was so traumatic to have to do that. Um, but because there were older kids, my sister's like, I have to tell. I have to tell my boys who are like eight and six. And just like, I, they're asking questions. So they're going to tell Wit. We're all in the same space. So it kind of forced my hand that I needed to tell him kind of right when we got back He ended up dying at nine o'clock at night. So he was asleep. So the next morning I woke up and took him to a separate room. And I feel like that was probably, that was the worst moment of my life for sure. Having to tell him. And I had looked up, you know, I am a Christian. So I think you want to go into heaven really fast. Like they're in heaven. They're in a better place. (laughs) Um, But I had, I'm glad that I had read some stuff before that because it was like, this is a three-year-old needs to sort of understand what happened now. Let's not jump to something that's really abstract and hard to grasp onto. And I think you came and shared this a little bit um, in the Vids for Woods videos, but the idea that you need to let them know what death is, like their body stopped working, their heart stopped beating, he's not coming back. So I tried to do that. I tried to be really specific, but... when you look at your little one's face, trying to even wrestle with that. And the minute that he started getting sad, after I said that, I like jumped into heaven. And I was like, oh no, like I'm messing it up. I'm not supposed to be going into heaven, but it's like, you want to make it okay for them. And I just remember he was, you know, jumping all around the room and, you know, being a three-year-old boy, somersaults and all that. And I was trying to get him to focus. I was like, hey, I need to talk to you about something really sad. Um, You know, how daddy left the other day. We've been at the hospital and um, dad, daddy died. We, I remember him kind of like stopping, jumping around and like looking at me. And he said, for real dead? And I think that he asked that because it's something that kids play when they're playing house or family. Um, someone died. So he's like, for real dead? And so that's the most I remember from that conversation. And he seemed a little bit confused and it wasn't a one and done. It was like a three-year-old, you have to explain it over and over and over again. So I felt like I had to relive the worst day of my life over and over again, over that next year. I I learned more when I connected with the Doggy Center about being specific about how he died. So I had I would say things like aneurysm and stroke, you know, and he... He still gets confused now, even though I said it so much. Like, how old was it called again? And so I, I've i just been shocked by that with kids. It's like, this is like the most, the biggest thing that's ever happened to them. But they still are sort of like squirrel. Okay, wait, how did dad die again? Ice cream. And so I'm like, oh, okay. Let me just break my heart again and tell you that his, his body's not working. Um. So yeah.
0: And you mentioned that that was the hardest moment was having to tell wit and see him kind of start to make sense of that, like the pieces coming together in his mind, and then I'm thinking about your youngest too, mm. when he got to an age of being able to talk about it or recognize or ask questions and like how did how did you manage that?
1: yeah, what's so interesting is that you know with each stage. With each like, developmental stage, there's going to be a new grief. That's something that I, I learned at the Dougie Center, and that's something that I know. Um, but I've really seen it with the the five-year-old, six-year-old stage. So when Rory was like, when Rory started talking and communicating when he's like three years old, he was kind of more like silly about it. You know, my dad died and kind of told it to everybody because we talked about it a lot. So he loved bringing it up at preschool. He loved shocking people at the grocery store. Like he tells anyone that he can. And the thing about Rory is he is a goofball. He is so funny. And so he Loved like messing with people. And so sometimes it's just so interesting the way that his sort of dark humor plays out and really gives people whiplash that are talking to him. They're like, oh, now we're talking about your dead dad. Okay. Um, But I found with both of my boys when they've gotten to around five or six kindergarten age, which Rory is now, it's been like finally a, an emotional thing to talk about. Where Wit obviously was sad, but he was acting it out in different ways when he was three. Um, but w- with like five and six, it's like actual tears and crying and pain about the loss of their dad. And with Wit, it was really interesting. It was music that always sort of brought it up. In the car, if a song was playing, I love show tunes, and so we were listening to um, "West Side Story," my favorite. Um, And it's like, there's a place for us. And it's such a deep song for a five-year-old to wrap their head around. But it was like, he got it and he started crying and he asked me to turn it off because it upset him. Because the idea of that song is, you know, there's a place where there won't be pain anymore. There's a place for us to be together. That kind of opened up all this conversation. And with Rory, you know, his comes out. Now a lot when he's in trouble, which I think we talked about this too earlier, but it's it's hard to not feel like, are you manipulating me when when he's like acting out? Like, let's say he breaks something or he's being mean to his brother. He gets in trouble. Hey, we're gonna you're gonna be in a separate space right now because you're not being kind. Then he'll start crying, like, I just miss dad. And it's completely out of nowhere. And I think what you know, you actually said this and it helped me have some empathy for Rory. You said that, you know, as adults, sometimes when we're feeling something deeply about something else, grief just pops up to the surface too. Um, And what's so funny is that yesterday, I had a little argument with Saul, my husband now, and I'm starting to cry and feel all this grief emotion about Ryan that has nothing to do with this little everyday argument. And I'm like in the bathroom crying. And then I have this light bulb of like, well, of course this happens with Rory. It's You're feeling all these deep feelings and then these other unsurfaced grief feelings pop up too. So I, I do try when Rory says he misses his dad to just believe it and to go there with him and be like, I miss him too. What do you miss about dad? But yeah, it's definitely the grief of my kids has been a very surprising part of this journey of how different it feels than my grief a lot of times and um, how it's hard to understand what's going on in their little minds and how it it seems to change every year. (laughs) Sometimes day
0: to day. (laughs) Day to day. Yeah. Which in a sense, I mean, our grief does too. But I feel like as adults, we have so many other things in the way, not in the way, but like, there's layers between us and the outside world. And sometimes for those younger kids, their grief is changing day to day, hour to hour. And there's not that many layers between them and like, what their inside experience is and how it comes out on their outside. And so they can oftentimes mirror back to us that variability that we're experiencing too.
1: Yeah, it's an adventure for sure. Holding their head. I think what's like. I think an adult can tell you, "I'm feeling grief, but it's it's coming out as anger." I think they can like pinpoint that. But with a kid, you're just seeing them be angry about something else, and it's hard for you to understand how that might connect to the loss. Um, But I try to always make space for the possibility of it being about Ryan or the fact that their dad is gone and he's not seeing them grow up.
0: And Leslie, you mentioned like their grief and then your grief and how different those experiences can be. And so I want to give you a little airtime to talk about your own grief as well. And you've, you know, something I read when I was doing a deep dive into your social media so I could learn a little bit more about you is this idea of like suddenly feeling like half a person when Ryan died and, and understanding that in a different level now because of working together, having a shared business together, like literally half of every part of your life was suddenly gone. And what do you recall about the, kind of those early days, weeks, and months of that experience?
1: Yeah, that thought is really about how merged Ryan and I were. It was always like, Ryan and Leslie will do this. Leslie and Ryan will do that. When you're married, you have Bibles like, the two become one. It's like, you really merge who you are with someone else and they're your sounding board. Soon you have the same jokes. You're speaking the same language. Ryan and I were very different people. We happen to like the same things. But even that, it's like, you know, I take on some of his traits. He takes on some of mine. And so that was so shocking when he was gone, just feeling like a half person still living the life that we were living together. So I went back to running the business that we started together, Harder Creative, which we make commercial videos. And I still do that today, but I, I went back maybe too soon doing it. And so I'm like, oh, I'm running this, the business we ran together without him. I'm raising the kids that we had together without him. I'm living in the house we had together without him. And it just felt like There's a lot missing. The other person who was sharing all of this life with me was gone. And even that that internal sounding board was sort of gone. And it's a lot like an identity crisis. (laughs) Like, who am I without this person? And I think at the start, my identity of me and Ryan was very, very important to me to keep going and to keep talking about. And it still is. I feel like he's always a part of me and in some ways we'll, we will always be married. But I had to learn how, who I was outside of that. Yeah, discovered new things about myself and, and learned how to exist as a whole person without him. But um, for a long time, I feel like at least like the first two years. Kind of felt like I was limping. I had just half of me, literally the metaphor of like being split in half, but trying to still wrangle kids with one arm. You know, like that's how it felt like doing everything with half of who I was before.
0: What did you need or what did you go searching for in your grief?
1: Really, the only thing that was helpful to me, and that is what inspired my Vids for Wits project, was talking with other widows. I have an amazing community that really surrounded me and an amazing family. And most of them are local and they were all really there for me. But there's nothing quite like talking to someone who's experienced the same thing and getting into, you know, what did you do? Like people that were maybe a couple of years out ahead of me what did you do when your kids asked this? And what did you do, you know, when you're starting feeling lonely and you're thinking about dating and how did you introduce that to your community? And how did you sleep? And is it okay that I'm doing this? And And just, you feel a little bit weird. You feel different than everybody else around you. And it just feels so nice to feel like, oh, this is something that people are going through every day this is death is something that's been around and is guaranteed since the beginning of time. Right. I'm not that special. I don't know. That helped me a lot. If they got through, I could get through it. Yeah. That's more of like a emotional need, but practically anyone that could take my kids was the greatest gift (laughs) at the first days. (laughs) Because what's interesting is like you only get to grieve in these little spurts, of emotions. I saw this Instagram video, or maybe it was a TikTok of like a mom trying to have an emotional breakdown, but she has to like open her kid's apple sauce. And then she goes (laughs) back to having an emotional breakdown. It's like when you just want to have a breakdown, but you have kids, you still have to wipe butts. Um, That was really hard for me at first. I was, I really just wanted to cry all day long and stay in bed and, and do all that. But I couldn't because I had, Kids at very demanding ages, right? Their diapers needed to be changed and we needed to, you know. And anyways, so having somebody that would just come and take my kids and when people were like, I'm going to come and grab your kids from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., like people that were really specific and that they just grabbed them. And obviously, it was nice when it was people that I knew my kids liked. So those people in my life that had kids the same age or that, you know, um, that Wit loved being around like babysitters that I knew he liked. When they showed up and took my kids for a couple hours, so I knew that my kids were okay. They weren't like alone and isolated. Then I could just like be at my house alone. That was that was a big need at the beginning. And I'm very grateful to everyone that did that.
0: Very grateful. And this question just popped into my head. So I might not be relevant, but I'm wondering, you mentioned that Ryan, both of his parents died when he was a young adult. I'm wondering if there's anything you think you learned about grief or about how to best support Rory and Wit in their grief from what you learned from Ryan about his grief.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is that I really thought I understood grief before I had to walk through it because that was like our big hard thing that we were always walking through because he did struggle with anxiety and panic attacks, I was always doing research on that and how that, what can help with that and how to respond when someone's going through that. And so I was always trying to invite Ryan to talk about his parents and I would try to incorporate them into our holidays. And I, you know, even though he, his parents weren't living, I was like, we need to be connected to your family. So we would drive to be with his aunts, uncles, and cousins. And he always felt like, oh, I just feel sad that my parents aren't here. He wasn't as doing regular stuff with them. But I was like, I had done all of that research. I was like, we need to make sure that your parents are part of our story. Um, but what's interesting is that I, when Ryan died, I was like, whoa, i I really didn't actually know the level of darkness he was going through. And I bet I was making him talk about it at times when he really didn't have to be talking about it, you know? I was like, no, you got to just, we got to share about it all the time. This is how we're going to conquer your anxiety. But I was like, wow, I was just guessing how to do this. And I don't know if I always made space for the times when he didn't want to go into it. Yeah, when it connects – sorry, that, is, that more connects to my own grief. But with wit and Rory, you know, what I learned from Ryan is that losing your parents very much is losing a part of your identity. It's a part of, like, how you define yourself based off of your – kind of the legacy that your parents left you. And I think that was really hard for Ryan because he had parents with big personalities – and I never got to meet them, and so he he felt like I was missing a piece of who he was because I didn't know them. And so I I feel that for Whit and Roy. Now they Ryan got to live out his whole adolescence with them, and 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 so I do think they're going to go through something a little bit different than he went through. Um, because he what he was really grieving was this the sounding board of his parents and being able to go to his dad for advice all the time. With Whit and Rory, I do think there will be that identity piece because your bio parents, they are really connected to who you are. And I I, I think that's going to come up a lot as they get older. Um, I am remarried now. And so they do have this bonus dad, Solomon, and he's he's doing an amazing job it's very hard job, but he's doing a great job. So I do feel like they, they're not grieving as much anymore. And even with, I mean, he used to cry, like, I wish I had someone to play with at the playground. Like, I wish I had a dad that would wrestle me and I would try to wrestle. And it was just pathetic, I guess. <laughs> but those, sort of, those are the sort of things he was saying when he was like four or five years old. And now they have that. But I, I know that that doesn't mean that they're like, i'm great now that i have someone to wrestle me i'm fine because they still lost everything that could have been with ryan and he was a very fun fun dad and because you know we made videos together for kids that was our job we have all these videos of him and so with Wait and Rory, they don't really see, you know, his angry days. They just see this magical, hilarious, funny dad that made kid videos. And so I do think they grieve that. They're like, why can't we have that in our everyday life? Because Ryan and I also worked with kids at our church, elementary kid age. And now our my kids are like, they're going into that age of the kids that we worked with. And so I do. I'm grieving. I don't know if they even know what they're missing because he was he was very good with kids that's always going to be a hole in their life
0: that they that can't really be filled by anyone you really highlighted how you know for ryan like grieving what he had and lost and then grieving for what he wouldn't have in the future without his parents there as he grew older and became a parent to kids who were getting older, and with rory and wit it's this idea of like grieving for what they really never got to experience and less of what they had and lost in a sense. And that that's just a little bit different, even though it all falls under the umbrella of grief. We have this one tiny word <laughs> to cover all of that. Yes. Yeah. Leslie, you've mentioned your husband, Solomon, a couple of times. And you spoke a little bit of like, you know, if you start to get lonely and you might want to date and how do you bring that into your community? So what was that like to get to a place of like, maybe I do want to date and to fall in love and to get married? Yeah, it wasn't
1: easy. I I was surprised at how early I was ready. I was ready to just find somebody casual because I was just so lonely. Um, but everybody around me was like, whoa. And I, I resisted that a little bit. So when I know widows that get married within the year, I'm like, you know what you need. And you're on a different timeline. Time works different when you're a widow than it does for everybody else. So two months for you might be like four years for someone else. If you need to get married again, do it. So I I was a believer in that. But for me, you know, I I didn't start dating until two years after. I wanted to date a year after but it was the pandemic (laughs) that proved difficult so um that put things on pause but yeah dating I was really worried about how my community would react especially people that were good friends with Ryan right so those couples that we were friends together with Ryan you know I worried about it being kind of a new level of grief for them they're, they kind of have to re-experience the death of Ryan by seeing my life change. Um, So I – you know, at the beginning, I was a little bit more – I really only shared it with people that were kind of the new group of friends I had formed because that's kind of how I met Saul through, like – it's not like they were new friends. They were friends with my sister, but I sort of hot, started hanging out with them a bit more because I do think it is sort of painful to live the exact life that you were living before, as I said, like, but you now – are only half of who you were. So you kind of have to try new things. So anyway, I met Solomon through that group. So it was easier for me to share with them and took some time to introduce to my friends. And then with the kids, I, you know, I had never thought about dating with kids. I never thought that was something I would ever have to do. My parents have been married, I think, 46 years. So the, I never saw my parents dating and I was so worried. I'm like, this is going to be so traumatizing if I have these boyfriends and then I break up with them and my kids get attached. And so I wanted to hide the kids from, I was like, I'm going to wait till I'm engaged to introduce them. <laughs> so I know that this is going to be like their new dad, but that doesn't actually work. And <laughs> Saul so was like, I am not just dating you. He's like, I also need to get to know this huge part of your life. I need to get to know your kids. And my therapist was a great help during that time because I was like, I don't want him to be around the kids. Like, what if we break up? And my therapist is like, your kids are eventually going to date right? You want them to eventually date and find somebody. And just like everything else you're doing in your life, you're just going to be modeling healthy dating for them. So like, he's like, yeah, don't model unhealthy dating. Don't attach in unhealthy ways in front of them and model that. But he's like, you can model healthy dating and healthy breakups. Your kids will be okay. If anything, you'll be teaching them something that will apply to them later. So that really really shifted how I thought about it and so I brought Whit and Rory around more and we did more like Saturday things with Solomon but it was it was scary and I just happened to end up marrying the first guy that I dated (laughs) and so they didn't have to there wasn't like a revolving door of boyfriends I mean I think I just say that to anybody else who's dating it's like it's okay to take the risk And break up if you're modeling it in these healthy ways for your kids. Like, they are going to have to date and break up, probably. So you can just show them how to do it.
0: I'm wondering, Leslie, because we're going to talk next about your project, Vids for Wids, which when you first emailed me about that, I was like, what does that mean? I was like, oh, videos for widows. I got it. Vids for wids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Videos for (laughs) videos. I'm curious, what term do you identify with now as someone who is married to Ryan? Ryan dies, you become a widow, and you get remarried. Mm. What term do you identify with now?
1: You know, I'm sort of in the camp of once a widow, always a widow. Because I do feel like I always want Ryan to be a part of my story. And this huge thing that happened to me, Will always be a part of my identity, so I guess remarried widow would be a title. Yeah, I don't know if widow—you have to be single to be a widow, <laughs> but it's just like yeah, I, I carry his story with me, and I, I think I always will, and, and I do feel, I feel sad sometimes. I talk to widows who are remarried who don't really know. And I, I get it too. You don't really know what to do with this part of your story now, this grief that stays with you, even though all of this other good stuff is flooding your life. You still have this terrible thing. Um, and I just feel like inviting them to be like, oh, no, you can s- still say like life is terrible. This terrible thing happened. Your kids aren't going to know their dad. That's terrible. But you can still have the good at the same time. And the other hand, I still go by would Widow and proud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and I go back to that idea too of how our grief is so interwoven with how other people interact with us around our grief. And if you're a widow and you get married, sometimes there can be this like, oh, phew, we don't have to like attend to that part yeah. anymore because they're married, they fell in love, everything's fixed.
1: <laughs> We're all good now, everything's great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do feel like the community had a sigh of relief of like, oh, we don't have to help her with her kids anymore. (laughs) I don't know if they would say that, but for example, my sister, she lived five houses down, and so she was the one. We were on vacation, and we were also also neighbors. Our lives were pretty – we were like a little commune, and so during COVID, it was so great to have them, but her and her husband, they really helped me, those – to, it was like, takes a village to raise a widow and her children. You know, <laughs> They really, they helped me with the kids so much. And I felt happy for them when I met Saul and he moved into my life. And they actually, they had always wanted to live somewhere else, but I think they delayed it a little bit for me. And they ended up Like right around when we got married, buying a house in a different neighborhood. And I just felt happy for them that they're they're like a little bit of the burden was lifted. (laughs) But in another way, I yeah, the grief and the pain, it's different, but it's still there. And so I do always appreciate when friends, you know, text me on an anniversary or they text me on his birthday or on the death day um, and check in. Because, yeah, the, it's a little bit less as time goes by and especially when all this great stuff has happened to me. But I do appreciate it because the breakdowns still come. They still
0: happen. How does Saul make space for your grief in your marriage?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, Saul is somebody that I like to call before because he hasn't really experienced that much grief in his own life. I have empathy for him because I've been in his shoes with Ryan when I was married. He really does make an effort to, you know, check in with me about stuff. But I also see that it's hard for him because he hasn't walked through it to know exactly. So I feel like because I've been in his shoes, I when he's like maybe a little like not great at the language of grief or knows exactly what to say with the boys or with me, I'm just like just grateful that he even you know shows up and makes an effort to ask how things affect me. And obviously when I do, if I do suddenly start crying or something, he is there, he's holding me and he's cried about it too. You know, if I walk through the story Having him cry about my dead Hudson, it's just a weird, beautiful thing and makes me feel very loved that he grieves with me about Ryan.
0: Okay, let's talk about your project, bids for Wids. I feel like we've just yes. been leading up to it, this whole conversation. Um, and I know it's really rooted in that that longing you had at the early parts of your grief of like, I just need to talk to other Widows who have gone through us, gone through this, or going through this currently. So, tell us a little bit about the project. How you got the idea?
1: Yes. So, I like I said, I make commercial videos for a living. It's really fun. I love making videos, but I was like, gosh, I'd, I'd love to make some videos that help people a little bit. And I, I asked the question, what did I want the most? And it really was people's stories, and not just their stories, but also a little bit of humor as well, because I feel like I grabbed every memoir I could, and I listened to every podcast I could, but when it was just sad, for me, I didn't connect with it as much, because I was living this weird experience where I was weaving in and out of jokes, laughter, and tears, and that just felt like um, way more relatable when I would get on the phone with like a widow that wanted to, you know, tell me like, this is what I went through and they like threw in some funny story about like making out with somebody and just, like just their flops of grief and the different things they tried. I would be like, this is so healing. So I was like, Oh, why don't I take the skills that I already have and video and invite widows to come and share their stories and get sometimes a little bit weird with humor and creative and and get dark and also make space for the tears and make space for all of it um and so that was the initial idea what i've been surprised by the most rewarding part of vids for wids is having people come into the room and You know, it's all – you were there, so, like, you know, we got the lighting. We were making them look good, and we got the camera and the crew. And they just feel like what – their story, what happened to them, the terrible thing that happened to them, which happens to people all the time. You know, a lot of people die of cancer. A lot of people are caregivers. It just makes them feel like what happened to me is important, and people want to know. And I feel like that has been the most surprising, greatest gift. Is like they come in I'm like, what happened to you? It really is important. It really matters. And it's a deep, painful thing. Yeah, so it's been a great gift. Bids for Wids is basically, just to describe the project, is just a series of videos by widows for widows for people who have gone through it and that are saying, like, we get it. You know, we we had that weird thought, too you're not alone, yeah, that's the biggest goal is just help people, especially get through that first year of grief, um, to just feel a little bit less alone, to keep waking up, to keep on going, um, despite the fact that
0: it's pretty terrible. I really appreciate this idea that there's comfort in the commonality, right? Like it's comforting to know this happens all the time. Many people have gone through this. And then, and yet, there's something really meaningful about highlighting my unique story and that the constellation of what happened to me matters in the general, you know, field of the commonality, too. So I'm just sitting with that of how, like, oh, I'm not the only one, and yet my only thing is really important. Yes. Yes. Beautifully put. That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) So folks who want to connect with your project, your story, your work, vids for wids, like where do they go?
1: Um yeah, the website is vidsforwids.com and if you are a widow or you know a widow, you can fill out the contact info. I love learning other people's stories and we also like periodically highlight new widows just to try to get them some financial support to their GoFundMes. So if you know anybody that you think would be good for that, you can reach out um, on the contact form on the website. And then also the Instagram, vidsforwids, at vidsforwids,
0: is where all the videos are being posted regularly. Check it out. And listeners, definitely go check it out. Eventually, my face is going to be on that Instagram. And Leslie somehow managed me managed to get me to pull tissues out of a tissue box with a flourish, which is not really my scene. So she's really good at her job.
1: (laughs) You looked amazing. I think you're gonna want to do more video work after you see it.
0: (laughs) Especially if tissue boxes are involved. So Well, Leslie, thank you for um, being part of the show today, for sharing your story with your unique blend of poignancy and humor and all the things that have been in the mix for you and your in your widowhood and, and sharing about what it's like to be a parent to kids who are grieving, too. So just, yeah, thank you for all of that.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful.
0: And listeners out there, you know, I say it each and every single time, but thank you for being part of our show, for making it mean something, for sharing episodes with friends, family, people that you think might be helped by what we're talking about here. You can always reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at Dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also the main website for Dougie Center, where you're, you can find all of our free downloadable resources Uh, information about our local programming, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Excited as always to share that the podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time.